Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at you, I guys didn't. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Handmade, the making podcast with real talk about materials. I'm your host, material scientist Anna Pajajski, and this episode I'm so excited to share an interview with Anissa Ramirez, where we talk about her new book, which is called The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. Anissa Ramirez is a material scientist and science communicator. So I guess I am slightly bending the rules here slightly by chatting to her and not a maker or a craftsperson. But as you'll hear in this episode, it was an experience with crafting and handmaking that formed the impetus for Anissa's book, The Alchemy of Us. So I kind of figured that that was an okay excuse for, for me to talk to her on this podcast. We spoke over the airwaves from her home on the east coast of the United States and from mine in London. Before we started recording, I gave Anissa a short summary of my own book, which is coming out next year, also called Handmade. The premise is, to be honest, pretty similar to this podcast in that I attempt to go beyond just the science of materials and really discover the world of craft and handmaking. My book is not out until next spring and there's absolutely no doubt that I'm going to be banging on about it a lot more in the months to come on this podcast. But the only reason I'm bringing it up now is that that's the place that Anissa and I started from when I hit record on this conversation that you'll hear in this episode. I started by asking Anissa about her path to becoming a material scientist and how she came to write The Alchemy of Us. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to to speak with you. And I think that you and I had a similar journey because you were trying to learn more about materials and beyond the graphs and stress and strain curves and the like, and really just learn, all right, what is this field? Um, And for you, it was looking at casting things and building things. And for me, I wanted to know where did it come from? What was the historical vantage? So it's a similar journey. And I, and I'm just so pleased to chat with you because I think speaking with you, it's going to fill in some knowledge for me as well. Um, As for my own journey, um, I'm a kid who loves science from a very, very early age. Uh, There weren't any scientists in my family. Um, What got me instilled in thinking about science was actually a television program that was very popular in the the States in the 
early 80s called 321 Contact. It was on our public television uh, programs. And in that show, why it was unique is because it was really about kids learning and figuring out mysteries. And why it was so touching for me is that on the program, there was an African-American girl solving problems. And I never really saw my image on television. And I saw a little girl using her brain, which was another thing that I hadn't seen. And so that was the North Star for me that put me in the direction to become a scientist. I had known I was very curious and wanted to become a scientist, but by seeing my reflection, that really changed things for me. So my story is pretty standard after that. I went to school, did pretty well in my, in my studies. Uh, I lived in New Jersey and did very well there. Um, but uh, I went to schools that most of the, my, my colleagues did not go. I went to Brown. And although I was a top school, top, top student back at in, back in my high school days, I wasn't when I got to Brown because it's just different level. And I actually nearly dropped out. Uh, but there was a class that I was sitting in where a professor uh, told us about materials and he would, and he made it real. He said, everything around us is made up of atoms. And that really allowed me to say, okay, I think that this journey is going to be a little difficult, but it gave me again, um, a compass that I wanted to become a material scientist. After that, uh, got my doctorate at Stanford, worked at Bell Laboratories for a couple of years, and then went on to become a, a professor at Yale for about a decade or so. And then along the way, it really became clear that I was more interested in getting the general public interested in science, not just doing science, science in the laboratory. So I made the jump to what I call this new career as science evangelist, which is a person who speaks, writes, and, and, and the like about science, trying to get people excited about science. Fantastic. And that's that's where the book comes into it. Um, it's so interesting that you say about the Bell Labs because they crop up a lot in the stories that you tell in the book. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm biased. Uh, you know, as I don't come up in the book, but what I like pops up in the book. And, and Bell Labs, in my opinion, was one of the best places on the planet. And I'm biased. I know this. But one of the best places on the planet to to do science, material science. Uh, you know, I was a junior junior scientist and across the hall from me was a person who won uh, the Nobel Prize. Amazing. So I was only going to get better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I so it was fantastic for me. And as for the book, for a long time I've been looking for a way to make material science interesting to a broad range of people. I taught introduction but I taught the introduction to material science class at Yale and loved it. It was a lot of demonstrations. In fact, the numbers grew every year because I did nearly deadly demonstrations to get people excited about this field. <laughs> Always a bit of, you know, a bit of peril never hurts anyone. That's right. It, it draws in audiences like no <laughs> yeah. one's business. Um, Amazing. And, I, and I loved it. And there was one year that I actually was asked to teach that class to liberal arts majors. Now I knew I had to take it a different, different approach because if I drew a graph, this per particular population was not going to be happy with that. And so I started telling stories. I started talking about how Napoleon's campaign in Russia was failed because the buttons had undergone a phase transformation where they disintegrated. Oh, yes. People, tin, right? That's right. And <laughs> people would sit up for that and they wanted to know more. And I was like, well, these stories, they, they really pull people in. And so that kind of got pocketed in my brain as a way to draw people in. And then uh, when I actually had time to sit down and write the book, I was trying to figure out how I was going to go about doing it. And, and it's stories that became that bubbled up again and said, this is how you make it compelling, not just to people who might like materials, might like science, but to people who don't. And so that was, that was kind of the premise for 
going forward with the book. So in the introduction to the book, you talk about the the sort of the jumping off point, the inciting incident that that um, caused you to write the book, which was an experience going bl- glass blowing. Um, and as I said, this is a podcast about materials and making. And so that made me really sit up that an experience of working with a material with glass with your hands was something that inspired an exploration of how materials have shaped us. So can you, can you tell me a little bit more about that glass blowing experience? Sure. So um, I had been a material scientist for some time. So I'm, I've been in this career for a long time. And one day I said, you know, I would really love to learn more about glass blowing. Many years prior, I went to Italy and I saw some glass blowers do some amazing things. And I said, you know, if I ever get close to a glass studio, I'm going to go visit. I didn't think I was going to do it because I'm, I'm very shy. So I said, well, I'm not going to do it, but I'll definitely go and visit. But there was one, just two cities over from where I lived, and they were just so fantastic. The day I visited, they're like, well, you try. And they were just so welcoming. And I said, well, all right, maybe I'll sign up for this class. But I knew that I had to be very cautious because I'm easily distracted and I, you know, I bump into things a lot. Uh, (laughs) And so you can't do that in a glass one class because you'll get hurt Mm. significantly. So I was working on a small vase generally. Um, But there was one particular day where I decided I was going to make a very large vase. I had a very hard day at work. And so I was just putting out all my frustration onto this newer vase. And when I stepped out of myself, this piece was actually becoming one of the best pieces I had ever made. It was huge. I I was going to make, put a bouquet of flowers in it. I was so excited about this piece. And in fact, my colleagues in the class they were like, Anissa, this piece is amazing. I'm like, I know, I can't believe I'm making this, you know? (laughs) So I had one more step uh, where I put the piece into the furnace for a flash of heat so I can remove it off of my pipe and then put it over to the area where it cooled. But I'm still talking to my friends about how great this piece is and it stays in there too long. When I pull it out, it's very, very hot. It's incandescent orange and it's about to fall off the pipe. I I do my best. I've only taken a handful of classes to try and remedy the situation by turning it over, using gravity to pull the glass piece so that it would go right. You know, I'm trying to take advantage of the fact that it's, you know, a viscosity, but it's way more viscous than it was when it's in a, a less hot state. And I don't do well. The piece falls to the floor, boom. And my instructor has witnessed, witnessed this, and he comes and rescues the vase, uh, puts it onto my pipe, gives it back to me. I try and shape it a little bit, and then I put it into the area where it should get a flash of heat and then remove it. And after this event where I'm calming down because this is very traumatic uh, and the piece is cooling, I had a moment to reflect. After we make a piece, we all get a popsicle to cool off, and I'm just <laughs> sitting there, and I'm like, you know what? I was in a bad mood when I got here. And I'm now in an okay mood. In fact, I'm happy to be alive. And I was shaping the piece. I was shaping glass because that's what you do in glass blowing. But it actually shaped me because it changed my attitude. It changed my appreciation for glass, my my skill or lack of skill. And so that was actually the moment that made me think about how materials and and humans have been shaping us in the last set, set of centuries. And that was the impetus for the book. 
I've had very similar experiences with making, be it um, throwing pots on the potter's wheel or knitting, all of these processes. Um, they do change your state of mind. And I think it can be quite humbling as academic material scientists to be thwarted by our materials <laughs> in the real world. <laughs> right. Well, I realize that I don't know anything. Yeah. You know, I, I know a lot, but I don't, my hands don't know very much. Absolutely. And, uh, and I liked having both of those things start to be, to, um, be at the same level. Mm. So, so you're a material scientist, um, but this book really, I think it's like the second derivative of being a material scientist, which is looking at the technology <laughs> that those materials are made out of and how those technologies have shaped us. So why mm -hmm. did you choose to take that extra step? Why not just write about the materials themselves? Well, I think it's been done and it's been done well. And I'm all for adding to that conversation, but I, I was trying to find another way to get materials across to, mm. as I mentioned, to a broader audience. And I wanted to really tell stories. And so that required technologies. It couldn't be just like this person threw a pot, yeah. not, not for this book, but it could be this person um, got this gem, which vibrates when you zap it with an electrical signal and made a clock. That's that's a story. There's movement. There's there's a dynamism to that. So um, and I, I wanted to this was for my own learning as well. I knew a lot about materials. I had heard some of the stories from the old timers. They've been reiterated in newer books. Mm. But I had when I was when I took this journey of writing this book, a lot of these things I had never even heard about before or, or people I had never heard about or and the like. So this was part of my own um, edification. And I felt if it was new for me, then it possibly is going to be new for a whole lot of people too. Yeah, I learned a lot of stories that I hadn't heard about before as well. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So you, a lot of the stories that you're telling, it's really, it's half kind of popular science book and it's half history book, right? Like you, it strikes me that you've had to become a historian almost to be able to tell these stories about how these technologies have developed through time and have shaped us through time as well. How mm -hmm. did you manage... Um, that that sort of shift in approach really to writing historically well my compass was it had to be a story mm. and and in order to do that you have to know a lot about what had happened to tell that story so i i remember counting how many books i took out for this book um and it was like 400 books oh wow um i needed to learn a lot so that i could have write confident sentences and know what was going on and, and in order to understand what motivated people, what was going on at the time. Oh, well, he did this, but there was a war before. So what happened in that war? Well, you have to read a little bit more about that so you can tell the full story. You know, in, in my last incarnation as a material scientist, a pure material scientist, maybe I would add a little anecdote about Henry Bessemer. Oh, you know, he made so-and-so. But but now I had to know why and why was that difficult and what did other people do and what was available to him. So it just required a lot of back reading to do so. And, and so I do think it's a science book. It does require context. And so you have to learn history, mm. but I would still say it was a science book. Mm. What did you learn through that process of looking at the history of it? Were there any kind of common themes? Common themes. Well, when I would go to the archives, so that's like going back and reading original materials and people's letters and the like. Now, some of these characters had been written about before. Um, but what I found interesting is it really, who writes the history is very interesting because 
I would look at the same original materials as a person who had written a book about a person. And I would see things that were interesting that they did not write about. So that tells me that it's really important for a lot of people of a range of backgrounds to look at the original materials and see what story is important to them in order to paint the full story of what happened. So that was interesting to me because I would read about, let's say, Samuel Morris. He's been written about a lot. And I would see something, and maybe it's because, excuse me, maybe it was because it was a lot of men who had written these books. But it, it seemed to me that the reason why he wanted to build the telegraph is because he was brokenhearted. His wife had died. He never got a chance to say goodbye to her. And, but no one, no one really talks about that in, in books, in biographies about him. And so I was able to make that link because that seems pretty obvious to me. If you're brokenhearted, of course you would love to make a way to communicate with someone. So what I learned is that uh, it's very important to, for people of a range of backgrounds to look at the original materials so that they can see what the story might be. And, and then we get a fuller picture. And if you don't mind me saying, this book is a masterclass in characterization. Um, and, you know, the classic storytelling thing of showing the reader, not telling them. So it's all very well, you know, telling them that this person is brokenhearted. But what you go on, you take it one step further and say you show them um, mm. what what the result of that was and what actions did that person take. Um, and that, that was the real thing that drew me into the book was how vivid you managed to make all these characters. And perhaps predictably, the majority of them are a cast of, you know, upper middle class um, white guys from the 19th century because, you know, Industrial Revolution and all of that. Um, mm -hmm. But even so, they they became they came alive to me in a way that I haven't um, really experienced in reading about them before. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. I mean, I, I did that because, again, as you say, the cast of characters was usually uh, white men of European descent. And I wanted to make sure that the book had a wide audience and that people could feel uh, connected to them. So what I had to do was find their human side. And so that requires far more digging than a lot of my colleagues had done. You know, I, I find out that a person was heart, heartbroken or that a person, uh, you know, had PTSD. That makes the person more real. And so then you can understand what was their, uh, their motivations and, and, and just feel more connected to them as a human. And I think so often I would be guilty of perhaps dismissing these characters, thinking, oh, I've got nothing, I've got nothing in common with them. Um, mm. But what I really what really surprised me or what kind of it kind of blew me away actually in the epilogue of the book you talk about the importance of showing the the fullness of the characters and including their flaws and by by displaying the fullness of the characters people can find likenesses like okay may, maybe i'm not the same as um henry bessemer i haven't had the same background as him but maybe i can identify with a certain element of him um and in that way, you managed to open out, open up um, kind of people to recognize the the character traits in themselves, which, um, yeah, I hadn't really made that connection before. Well, thank you for that. I mean, that I worked very hard to do that, even if it was a minor character flaw that I could find, because when we when we loft these great men of science, we do ourselves a disservice we push a lot of people away from thinking about science, thinking that science is for them mm. and being critical of science. And that, as we know, is a mistake, particularly in the era that we're in right now. So I wanted to draw more people in and say, no, this is for you. This guy had um, seasickness. See how crazy he is? Yeah, he's smart, but he's weird. So, um, so, so that people would feel like, oh yeah, well, he's smart, but 
you know, he's not that smart. I can do that. And, and that's, that's what we need so that people will feel more critical of the devices and technologies that are around them. This is, that, was the, that was the premise of the book, to get people conditioned to, to be critical so that they will be well-prepared for what's coming at us in the second part of this, uh, this century. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You make some interesting connections with the stories um, and jazz comes up quite a few times in the book. Do you play jazz? Is that a passion of yours? I don't play jazz. I'm very confused with jazz, but now I see that it's very brilliant. And so that's, it was part of my own learning because my, my approach to jazz was very distant. I, there's a couple of jazz players that I love. Like I love Coltrane. Hmm. I'll play him in the background, but I'm not a scholar of jazz, but I also knew, cause I wrote a book prior to this uh, book that, uh, that you need to use every tool in popular culture to pull people in. And so I was looking, I, so I use music and I use jazz. And when I was thinking about jazz, I knew about some of it, but then I could see some connections to physics and then my mind started to explode and I would go down those paths. So, so I'm, I'm not a, a student of jazz, but I do know its power in, in its analogy and in pulling uh, people in uh, because it's music. Yeah, definitely. I was just interested. I play the trumpet. Not very well. Oh, awesome. Awesome. I play <laughs> um, the guitar badly. Maybe we'll form a band. Yeah, let's. <laughs> <laughs> so um, for anybody that's listening that hasn't read the book, um, each chapter takes us through uh, a development of technology and how that technology has changed, has sort of sort of shaped us as humans. So um, to go through the chapters, you've got clocks, the railroads, telegraphs, um, uh, cameras like f- photographic cameras light bulbs data storage glassware and computers um how did you decide on those eight topics <laughs> it's a good question um how did i decide well eight is a good number um you know i had to write 300 pages and so i said well i can break it up so i can get this many pages per chapter mm-hmm. um how did i decide those particular topics well there is a structure, there is an architecture to the book, which I work really hard to develop, which is to tell a story 
in the beginning of the chapter that's historical about why this technology was important. Maybe that event would or would have happened differently because of that technology. So there's a historical vignette. Then there's an origin story of that material, that technology. And then it has to, uh, the last part is about the impact of Mm. that material. So each chapter has that. Sometimes it's straight like that, ABC. Sometimes they're weaved together. That happens in a couple of chapters too, just to make it more interesting. Uh, There were many other materials that I was interested in, but I couldn't get all three of those components or I had all three of those components and it wasn't, it wasn't interesting. It was interesting to me, but it wouldn't be interesting to everyone. (laughs) So, so, so that's why I chose it. And and I actually thought that this was a good cross section. It touched everything, timekeeping, photography, uh, our brains with silicon chips. This really, you know, I can, I can write another, you know, there could be the more, more alchemy of us, but Mm -hmm. uh, this seemed to be a good, good pass uh, to really uh, provide a cross-section of how these materials impact us. Yeah, you've opened yourself up very well to a a second book there, (laughs) or a a sequel. (laughs) Um, Are there any favourite stories from the book that you can share with the listeners? Well, my favourite story was actually the hardest to write. Mm. That was about photography. I'm actually a fan of photography. I I love it. I, I remember long, long time ago, uh, where I had access to a um, a dark room on the college campus, and I used to make black and white images, I, and I just loved it. Now, you know, you can just take a picture and, and turn it black and white. Mm. But I love doing that. Um, and I was looking to learn more about how photography impacted us. And a couple of years ago, I was watching a newscast, and I heard about Polaroid and its use, uh, its selling of film to the South African government. And so I dug a little bit more. And the story that I found is that There were two employees who had discovered that their employer, Polaroid, was selling their instant photography cameras and film to the South African government, which was using it as a way to control and monitor the whereabouts of Black South Africans. It ends up that every Black South African had to carry with them a passbook, and it told officials where this person can go and where they could not go. And in the center of it was a photograph made by Polaroid. So... This absolutely blew me away, and I actually just talked to the people, Caroline Hunter in particular, about this story. I had never heard about this. I, my grandfather used to have a Polaroid camera, and I loved it. And I didn't know that just on the other side of the planet that this was being used as a tool in a negative way and because in the United States, we don't hear this story. So that, story, that felt like a very important story to get out, and I worked really hard to, to, to discuss a very hard topic uh, so that we were all aware of this, because the topics that happened long ago are actually kind of bubbling up today. So that would be my favorite story, um, because it was so hard. And actually, I think it's very important for us to all know about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at the end of the book, you you give us a kind of call to action. And that call to action is that we, we're we all allowed to be innovators. Mm-hmm. Um, why Why did you decide on that as your final sort of message to the reader? Well, as, as a person who makes a lot of things based on your podcast, you all, you know that the power of making something mm. and feeling connected to something. Like if, if we're just living visually, we're, I mean, making code is making something, but there's something fantastic about actually touching something and, and, and moving it and it moving you. There's a dance there. And I think it's very human to want to connect to materials that way. 
Um, I also wanted people to feel a little bit more connected to the notion of creativity and being an innovator because we tend to, well, in the United States, we, we have a lot of people who consume, but they don't really know about the workings of things. And, and they're starting to feel okay about that. And I think that that's a mistake. I think we should know more about how this world is, this world works because there's so much, it, it's, it's wonderful. There's so much wonder in technology, but I wanted people to feel a little bit more connected. And so the book is a call to action to tell people, just learn a little bit more about how things work. You're going to be amazed. Mm. So the book is about how this technology has shaped us. Do you see any worrying trends in how technology is shaping us today? Uh, what do you mean exactly? Um, I'm thinking particularly of the final chapter about how the silicon chip has changed us and how it's changing our, our brains. Um, yeah, yeah. What's the trajectory of that? Is it is it going to level off, you know, now that Google is here, is that it? Are we always just going to be able to Google stuff? Or um, is it is it going to be continuing to increasingly integrate um, our, our minds with silicon materials? I see. Very good question. Um, well, I tried not to be too pessimistic in the book, um, but it will continue if we don't wrangle it. It's sort of like a Mustang. You have to pull the reins. Okay, no, no. <laughs> go over there. Yeah, yeah, you can go over here. We have to do that with technology because it will continue to be more and more embedded in our lives. More of our data will be uploaded. We'll have less and less control over it. Um, And the things that make us uniquely human will start to dissolve a little bit. Like we make mistakes, but sometimes I make a mistake and it ends up, it's a great idea. Well, if we upload everything and we are trying to make everything precise and clean well we won't have all those great things that make us human which is to to look at uh, mistakes and see them in a new way we won't be able to innovate because a lot of innovation happens by mistake so i pose the book that technology is here it's not going away it's a strong force but we need to be critical of it in order to make our best lives yeah definitely um, so you you wrote this book presumably well I mean obviously b- before the current um, coronavirus universe that we find ourselves speaking in now. Um, mm-hmm. It I mean I've read the book during lockdown. It seems pretty watertight. You know, there's there's nothing that you that you read and you're like, oh, well, that's not the case now. Like it, it's all applicable still. But mm-hmm. um, has has the current situation changed how you felt about the book as you've had to be you know promoting it like we're doing now? Well, it seems a lot of people have reported back that they find it to be a nice break Mm. from thinking about COVID uh, because it's immersive enough that they can just take a departure from life. And that that makes me happy. So, you know, from a meta view of the book, um, in terms of will it be evergreen? Well, the great thing about history is that, you know, it's happened already and it's my interpretation. And, you know, so this interpretation should last for at least another 175 years or so. I did add some things that are kind of about what goes on today, like text messages. Maybe that text <laughs> message will seem very antiquated in 50 years or maybe even 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I, 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 you know, I had to make that decision. But using history to, as a lens is, it's a snapshot. So if it's wrong in 50 to 75, 75 years, that's okay. It's a snapshot of what's going, now, going on right now. So I did, I, really, I really didn't look to see if it would be out of date. Uh, it's it's it really I really just thought of it as a snapshot. Yeah, sure. Um, and what's next for you? 
oh, well, I continue to continue to write. I'm working on another book, uh, adult nonfiction book, but it's a little stalled because, well, I can't get to the archives right now. Mm. So I'm in the midst of creating uh, some children's picture books about little known inventors. Um, a couple of years ago, there was a movie called Hidden Figures, yeah. which really struck me. And I started looking at key inventors that uh, of African descent, uh, women inventors. And I said, oh, well, where are their picture books? And I couldn't find them. So uh, I'm in the business of trying to get them written. Um, and that's, that is something I can do, even though I don't have access to huge libraries. Uh, and then when COVID goes away, then I can get back to writing uh, my uh, other books. Um, some of the, one book is, uh, will be an ode to material science because I can't get enough of that field. <laughs> and another will, Another will be about uh, bias in in technology. Wow, they sound amazing! I'm so excited <laughs> to read them. <laughs> Thank you. It's going to be a while, so you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know how these things work now. <laughs> it takes a minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my final question, actually, is um, about the very, 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 very start of your book. You dedicate it to your mother and grandmother. Why was that? Mm. Well, I mean. Without them, I wouldn't be here. And I'm not saying that biologically. Um, my, my folks made a lot of sacrifices for me to be here. Uh, they grew up, my, my grandmother and my mother uh, and my grandfather, but I dedicated to my uh, maternal side, that uh, they lived in the Caribbean. And then they lived in the UK. And then they moved to New Jersey. And then I came along. And, you know, they had a much harder life. And they, my grandmother never got to see these things. So I dedicated to her because, um, you know, it wouldn't, I wouldn't be where I was, where I am, uh, if it wasn't for her. And she's, she was a superhero. I mean, she did so much. Um, you know, I have all this education. She had less and she did way more than I did. So, um, so I'm just trying to do my part of, uh, my part of the deal. Fantastic. Um, well, thank you so much for chatting to me, Anissa. It's been really great to hear from you um, about all the kind of backstories of the book um, and how it came to be. If listeners have been interested to to hear from you, um, where can they go online to find out more? Well, I'm pretty active on Twitter and uh, my website is anisaramirez.com. I'm very responsive. So feel free to drop me a line. Let me know how you're doing. And if you one of the things I've been doing because I haven't been able to reach people is if you want a signed book plate, uh, I am happy to send one to you. Uh, if you're in the UK, I will do my best, um, but I will you know, get something to you just so that until we can connect again. Yes, please. I would like one of those. Um, amazing. Well, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really great to chat to you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So that was the fantastic Anissa Ramirez. Thanks so much to her for coming on the podcast and for sharing her passion for material science. If you'd like to hear more from Anissa, she's going to be doing a free live streamed talk hosted by the Royal Institution on the evening of the 20th of October. I've put a link to that in the show notes of this podcast. That's everything for this episode. As always, I'd be super grateful if you could like and subscribe and tell all your friends about the podcast. If you'd like to give a one-time financial donation to help keep us going, then you can do so at supporter.acast.com forward slash handmade. If there's a material that you'd like to hear covered on the podcast, then do get in touch. We're on Twitter at Real Talk, that's R-I-A-L Talk, or on Instagram at Handmade Pod. 
As always, a huge thank you to Dave Shepard for the cover art and to Alex Lathbridge for the music mix. Next week, I'm going to be talking all things pigments with artist and natural paint maker Ezra Alhamal. But until then, thanks as always for listening and I'll see you next time on Handmade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.